Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161B and 121. Peace, Christian vs. Humanism, Middle East. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 241, April 17, 1991. This evening, Otto Scott and I have uh, with us one of our Calcedon staff members, John Lofton. And our subject is peace, Christian versus humanistic. Now, I believe this is a very important subject. And I think one of the great evils in all discussions of peace by Christians is that they discuss things in abstraction from the Bible and the Bible in abstraction from life. They forget that all of the Bible was written in the context of very grim world affairs. And in fact, in the day of our Lord, one of the most obvious facts to both Romans and Jews was the fact that war was coming, a war between Judea and Rome. There were too many people, zealots, uh, of course, were the major party for war, who were determined at all costs to overthrow the Roman rule. They believed that because they were the covenant people and they were therefore the people with God on their side, that God would miraculously deliver them no matter how insane their rebellion might appear humanistically. Now, this was a very considerable force. At the same time, the Romans recognized the strategic importance of Judea. It was on the highways of commerce between the East and the West, North Africa and the Middle East. And they went overboard in doing everything to please Judeans. As a matter of fact, they turned it into a show city full of marble buildings, magnificent uh, gymnasiums, uh, palatial uh, public places. It was a city of remarkable beauty, of remarkable costliness. And the Romans had the belief that so many people on Washington do now with regard to Moscow. If you pour enough money into the Soviet Union, they're bound to love us and bound to turn into a peace-loving people. And that was the thesis of Rome with regard to Judea. And this is why they were so vengeful when finally war broke out. At that time, all the areas, the mountains, the hills around Jerusalem 
or heavily wooded. After the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, every last tree was cut down in order to be used as a cross. They crucified them by the thousands upon thousands, sold others into slavery and others simply butchered because they felt all their earnest peace efforts had come to nothing. Now, that was the humanistic view of peace, which the Romans had, and the Judeans, with their belief that because they were the chosen people, God was going to deliver them miraculously, no matter what they did, no matter how outrageous and stupid they were. As against this, there was one who spoke out, and... The attitude of the public officials was that if we allow this man to come, the Romans will take our city away. They will prevail totally. And it is better for this one man to die than for the nation to perish. That was the conclusion of the leaders of Judea. And in the night before... His, well, the night of his arrest, our Lord spoke about peace to his disciples. And I think his words we need to remember. Beautiful words, but they were not abstract words. They were words set in the context of this coming conflict, which he predicted the day before. You can read about it in Matthew 24. But this is what he said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. So he was saying there is a possibility of peace. But it's not the peace of Rome nor the peace of the Judeans. It is the peace of God. And the earth can only know peace through that. Well, with that general introduction, Otto, would you like to make a general introduction before we turn to John for his comments? Well, we're talking now about peace in uh, the specific. We're talking mm -hmm. about yes. peace in the Gulf. Is that right? Peace in the Middle East. There and elsewhere. And yes. elsewhere. Well, not too long ago, in fact, the early part of March, there was a convocation in the Vatican, between the Vatican and the bishops and the patriarchs in the Middle East, on the discussion of what next, mm -hmm. what after this. The uh, patriarch of the Chaldeans and the patriarchs and bishops of the other, the Maronite Christians and various and sundry other Christian groups in the Middle East, in Syria, in Jerusalem, in Iraq and all the other countries. There's about 15 million Christians in that area. Mm -hmm. They include Palestinians. A considerable percentage of the Palestinians are Christian. And, and Iraqis, too. Yes, and Iraq. Well, Iraq, it's interesting about Iraq. 
Iraq was the only Arab country in the Middle East where Christians and Jews were not discriminated against under Saddam Hussein. <laughs> and our press, which has been over there, somehow not didn't manage to stumble over that fact. Yes. It's interesting. And it's also interesting that this convocation of the Christian leaders, Christian spiritual leaders of that community, denounced the war. They were against the war. And they were against the results of the war. The Chaldean patriarch estimated the Iraqi dead at 500,000. And he compared that, he said, is Kuwait worth 500,000 lives? 250,000 Kuwaitis worth that much. They didn't talk about the destruction of property, or he didn't, excepting in the terms of the monasteries, the convents, the churches that were bombed, the archaeological places, Babylon, Ur, Nineveh, the oldest places in Mesopotamian civilization, which are still being excavated. They were all bombed. Yes. They were all bombed by our Air Force. And the argument, of course, was that they might have held ammunition or something of that sort. Yesterday, I read the English Spectator, and it, the individual said that he drove along the road leading from Kuwait toward Baghdad, which is littered with automobiles and trucks and tanks and bodies. And we not only bombed them, but we napalmed them, we burned them alive. Nobody knows how many thousands. They were in retreat when we did this. We burned them as they retreated. And some of the soldiers disobeyed the orders of their officers, some of our soldiers, and refused to fire on them. And the same thing was true of the British troops. It was the Air Force that went all out. And none of this convocation and none of these statements from this great religious convocation as far as I know, was printed or reported anywhere in the United States. But if you stop to think about it, it's a very significant event. Yes. The Catholic Church in the United States, of course, repeated what the Vatican had concluded and told all its parishioners in the armed forces and out that they were engaging in a war against their church. And they said, it's a matter of your conscience as to whether you obey the church or the state in this issue. And of course, as we know, they, they all obeyed, or almost all obeyed the state. But we have here the issue of Jerusalem. We have here the issue of all these different uh, groups and faiths. We have detonated a bomb which is a fire which is not going to go out in our time. I agree. John? Yeah, I think, it's, <clears throat> I think you're right, Otto. I think it's a fire that's uh, going to spread. And burn <clears throat> us. I think so. What got me to thinking about the question of biblical uh, Christian idea of peace versus the uh, secular idea of peace uh, which is also the idea of peace of uh, many conservatives, was when during the uh, war against Iraq, I saw Secretary of State Baker somewhere in the Middle East on yet one more peace mission, quote, unquote. Uh, 
actually saying at a podium somewhere that, uh, quoting the psalmist, he said, we, we must uh, listen to the psalmist who said, seek ye peace and pursue it. Uh, he said it's time that all of us uh, took the psalmist, uh, the psalmist, <laughs> Freudian slip there, the, palm, uh, the psalmist's uh, advice. I, except, of course, the kind of peace Baker was pursuing uh, really had uh, nothing to do with the kind of uh, peace spoken of in the Psalms. In fact, in the very next uh, scene on the nightly news, after showing Baker saying that, he was shown smiling and shaking hands with President Assad of Syria, who uh, doesn't strike me as a man who's heavily into reading or or obeying the Psalms. the biblical idea of peace, uh, which this statement by Baker uh, caused me to do a little research on, is tells us that peace is the achievement of God, not man. It's it's mm-hmm. inescapably uh, wrapped up in the idea of righteousness and holiness and God's justice and uh, God's law. But the the modern idea of peace, uh, which, which again, I, and I'm, it saddens me to say it, is the idea of most. Uh, Conservatives, even conservatives who call themselves Christians, is the idea of peace through strength, uh, peace through war. Uh, I have here uh, in front of me a quote of Billy Graham, uh, uh, who prayed uh, at the White House with George Bush before and during this war, and and he equates uh, peace uh, with war. The exact uh, quote here, it's out of uh, U.S. News and World Report, is, we must fight for peace. Peace through strength was a Nazi slogan. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, they were pagans too, weren't they? A yeah. type of uh, uh, pagan. What, uh, pardon me. Yes. Wasn't uh, Gorbachev and uh, Bush's term the New World Order Hitler's term originally? That was his Hitler's term for the, the New Reich, the New yes. World Order. So we're on the same path. <laughs> very, very similar. Well, I, I thought of Bush and his uh, President Bush and his New World Order when I when I read how Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, uh, were concerned about false prophets who were always going around mouthing off about what about peace when of course as uh, uh, proclaiming peace when of course uh, uh, there was no peace because men were not right with God. Yes. And well, uh, may I interrupt? Sure. The Evangelical leaders, Pat Robertson, uh, Billy Graham, and the others, were in favor of this action. It was the uh, established churches that were not. Most of the mainline churches uh, in the Protestant denominations were opposed to this action. They were opposed to to, uh, bombing and the rest of it. They all were in favor of negotiations. And here we run into the peculiarity that Saddam Hussein called for negotiation <laughs> and was told that there wouldn't be any, that his, his goal was to surrender and retreat. Well, I would say that uh, the idea of peace through negotiations, which is peace through talk, <laughs> is, is, a, is another kind of uh, false religion, uh, certainly when compared to the biblical idea of peace, the idea that we... If we just sit down with an enemy and talk, you know, talk long enough that somehow uh, peace will occur because our differences are some kind of failed communication. I mean, I, we hear this all the time, uh, whether it's a 
domestic or international problem, well, you've got to talk about it. You've got to talk it out as if, as if all disagreements are somehow uh, can be solved by, uh, by talking. Well, in this case, it didn't seem to me that negotiations were uh, unthinkable. Well, no, but I mean, uh, to negotiate what? That's what I usually think of when someone... Uh, well, the idea was to negotiate an end of the sanctions and a negotiated retreat from Kuwait on the part sure. of uh, Iraq. And also to negotiate the dispute that a Iraq and Kuwait had over the question of who was getting whose oil on the border. Uh, and I would say even to raise the question of negotiations was inappropriate because we weren't ready to negotiate with Moscow on Lithuania or Estonia, Latvia, Georgia, the Ukraine or Armenia, all wanting freedom and all being persecuted and all being treated worse than Saddam Hussein treated anyone, That's making true. no excuses for Saddam Hussein. That's true. So we were not going into any negotiations or any, into a war with clean hands. We were guilty oh, uh, both ways. No, that's another question. I mean, our hands haven't been cleaned at any time, as far as I know. But this was a full-fledged, all-out attack on a scale which the world has never seen. Yes. We dropped more bombs on Iraq than we did on Ger that was dropped on Germany in all World War II, mm -hmm. and negotiation to avoid a catastrophe of that proportion seems to me would have been a better course of events. Yes. Look, let me say one other thing on the negotiations thing. Because of the way George Bush is a uh, he's a moralist and he personalizes immediately uh, these kinds of conflicts and. When, when you spit in someone's face for six months straight from the opening bell, even if you then at some point wanted to negotiate, uh, how, could, how, how could a person negotiate with you? When, when that man, uh, the, their foreign minister, uh, Mr. Karakaziz, refused to accept the letter that Baker gave him, and uh, uh, a lot of people acted as if they were shocked, and I thought, well, what do you expect? I mean, after you insult and uh, call the guy Hitler and uh, threaten war crimes, Trump, and th and then you expect him to take your letter? Well, there's no question <laughs> that Mr. Bush maneuvered from the beginning for this particular war. Exactly, yeah. he wanted a war. But I don't think that he quite realized what it would accomplish. Right now, we have a, he has effectively des destroyed not only Iraq but Jordan and Kuwait. Now, Lebanon was already destroyed between the Syrians and the Israelis. So, you've got dogs, wild dogs, running through the streets of Lebanon, of, of its major city now. The people are afraid of them because that's, that's the kind of devastation that was wrought. It took, when Eisenhower sent the Marines over in 1952 or three, I've forgotten exactly when, all the disorder there stopped. That was the extent. We had such great prestige. When Reagan sent them over, they were they were destroyed. That was the difference in our prestige in that area of the world. But the destruction of Lebanon is a crime which has never been brought to the attention of the average right. person. <laughs> it's a fantastic destruction. It was a destruction of the only country in the Middle East where you had Arabs, Christians, Muslims, and so forth, all living in harmony. 
It was the largest banking center in the Middle East. It was the only international culture in the in the Middle East, in a real sense. And it was destroyed. And now we have three other countries destroyed. We have Jordan is destroyed effectively. Kuwait is on fire, and Iraq is destroyed. They have starvation in Iraq now. They have plague in Iraq now, and we are maintaining the sanctions and the blockade against it. And today's paper said that we are feeding the Kurds, the most savage people in the Middle East, and not feeding the Christian Assyrian refugees. We're doing this because this is a continuation of the policy of destabilizing and destroying the Arabs in the Middle East. We, uh, that's, this is now four countries that have been destroyed. Lebanon, Iraq, Kuwait, Jordan. We're old enough to remember when Lebanon was called the Switzerland of the Middle East. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. You used to have pictures, vacation, and yes. the beach. It was a popular European popular. Uh, uh, resort area. Yes. And remember, this, the capital of Lebanon was bombed. Mm -hmm. That was very quickly forgotten, wasn't yes. it? Tell you, one of the things that shocked me uh, about this war against Iraq was uh, not just that the most prominent uh, Christians uh, in this country... Uh, made no effort to in any way uh, biblically justify the war. They, di they didn't even twist scripture uh, to try to justify the war. They didn't cite it at all. But in addition to that, uh, some of them had such a bloodlust uh, for the war, particularly Pat Robertson, who I watched uh, every day on the 700 Club for, for two months straight. I, I meticulously recorded his program. I wrote down his quotes, and this was a man that was laughing, and I mean, he could not wait to get into this war. Cal Thomas, uh, the columnist, uh, called for the use of nuclear weapons in this war. Uh, this was an amazing was spectacle reason, to shed indeed. blood. Yes. Why these men and Billy Graham and the Dallas uh, Seminary faculty uh, were so warlike, and three books were published within a matter of weeks by some of these men, Pat Robertson, one of them, which sold in excess of a million copies in a matter of a couple of weeks because they were all predicting that this was the beginning of Armageddon and the rapture. And you have so many people out there who are uh, <clears throat> believers in this nonsense and they were welcoming the war and the butchery that followed because it was going to lead to their rapture. You know, when you stop to think of it, the whole idea of the rapture is not very flattering. What do they want to do? Leave us all to our troubles while they go to paradise? <laughs> well, supposedly all the Christians are going, and if we don't, we're not uh, Christian. Well, I think heaven will surprise all of us by its population. I think some of these people are going to be raptured to hell because of their bloodthirsty, ungodly ways. The rapture is more important to them than Jesus Christ, according to some I've talked to. That's, That's the test of the faith for them. That's now, there's some godly... I never really uh, thought of the faith as an escape, did you? No. I know some godly premillennialists, men I respect, although I don't agree with them. 
but I have encountered too many who if you don't believe in the rapture and if you didn't believe that Armageddon was right there, you are of Satan. Well, may not, you know, Armageddon is a very big word, but we seem to be trembling on the brink of a civilizational collapse. Yes. The, uh, you brought up Armenia, Azerbaijan, Lithuania, Latvia, etc. There, uh, Africa, you know, is a basket case. Yes. And those countries are collapsing. Those economies are collapsing. Mm -hmm. The British Empire is in new convulsions since Thatcher left. Uh, the whole British Commonwealth idea is, of course, now just nonsensical. Which we're looking next door to Canada, where Quebec is on the verge of departure, and there's new uh, secessionist movements on the West Coast. The, the Central American countries are in a bad state. South American countries are in a terrible state. We've got Argentina, we've got Brazil, we've got Chile, we've got Peru. Uh, cholera spreading in Latin America. Plagues and so forth. The plagues that are going to arise in Iraq are going to spread all through the Middle East. Mm -hmm. We're, instead of a new world order, we're looking at a new world disorder. Mm -hmm. Yes. And a very widespread one, yes. too. And Europe is being flooded because of a variety of liberal ideas by aliens who are anti-Christian to the core of Muslims. Well, they're the geographical home of Christianity is being demolished by yes. immigration. Christendom is not going to be easily defended when it doesn't have a geographical base. Mm -hmm. And we're con constructed, <coughs> pardon me, with the same problem. And thousands of Christians are slaughtered daily somewhere in the globe and nothing is written about it. Well, we're living behind an iron curtain. Yes. A pay, you could call it a, a press curtain. Yes. We're in the condition, you know, somebody wrote a book called They Thought They Were Free, and it was about Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. They had lots of newspapers, they had lots of magazines, mm -hmm. they had radio, and they really thought they were kept informed. Yes. So do we. But look at this convocation that I mentioned in the beginning, the Pope, bishops, patriarchs, representing all kinds of people. That's the first I've heard of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's significant that so many of the stories spread about the horrors of Saddam Hussein's regime in uh, Kuwait are now turning out to be lies. But even the oil spill was not anything they did, but it was an, uh, an oh, oil ship. You mean the cormorant? That old photograph that they dug up of the oil slick well, cormorant? Supposedly they had created an oil spill to destroy the desalinization plant. It was an oil tanker that had a problem and spilled a lot of oil. Well, it's a good rule of th uh, thumb uh, regarding this recently concluded uh, I almost don't want to call it a war, call it a war because it wasn't much of a fight. We had to have a new name. That almost everything we were told as a rationale for the war has now, in very short order, uh, been proven to be false or, or seriously exaggerated.
No one has asked the president what we won. Good question. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll show up at the next White House press conference. That's an excellent question. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> what did we uh, win? Uh, and when do we get it? Yes. And uh, I think we disgraced ourselves in the eyes of the world with a sheer viciousness of our murderous mm -hmm. bombing and our killing of fleeing soldiers when the war was really over. That, we took that from the Nazis. Mm -hmm. What they did to Poland. Yes. I remember the shock created by the Stuka dive bombers of Germany against the relatively defenseless people of Poland. And John Grigg, later on, many years later, compared the men of World War I with the men of World War II. He said World War I wasn't considered a holy war. It was just a war between great powers. But in World War I, it was agreed to leave uh, civilians alone. In World War II, both sides attacked civilians, and we attacked civilians more fervently and for longer and at a greater damage than did the Germans. And Churchill started it. Yes. And Grigg said if in World War II was supposed to be a crusade, a holy war, a war against the devil. But he said the men of World War II, the generation of World War II was not as moral as the generation of World War I. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, we've gone a step deeper down because of what we did in Iraq we have now stand exposed as a nation that will hold no barriers. Yes. Once we draw the sword, it's going to be like the ancient Mongols. Yes. And don't forget, we're the people who did drop not only one bomb, but two. On the Christian... On the Christians of Japan. Yes. The Christian center. Yes. It, it was often said as one of the rationales for going to war against Iraq that you had to do this because... Saddam Hussein uh, never had a weapon that he didn't use, but of course... <laughs> he did? Well, as it turned out, A, that was a lie because he apparently did have weapons he didn't use, or we may find out he never had those horrible weapons in the first place. I'm talking here about chemical and biological weapons and possibly nuclear weapons. They found... Uh, uh, there was a story in the paper today that they can't find the nuclear material that he was supposedly building these bombs with, but you can bet they're looking for it like crazy. Well, if it's not there, I'm sure they'll plant some. The Soviet Union used poison gas in the Ukraine mm -hmm. under Gorbachev. Mm -hmm. It's used poison gas in Cambodia. And the Egyptians used poison gas in the Sudan mm -hmm. in 1956. But, but I was going to... Uh, Selective indignation. Yeah, oh, yes. The, the end of what I was going to say was that our president, as it turns out, is the one who had the worst weapon in the history of the world, and his name was Harry Truman, and he, he was a Baptist, and he not only used the weapon once, uh, uh, he used it he used it twice. Yes. I never understood the second time. I never understood the first time. I didn't know why it wasn't a demonstration offshore. I recently read a book uh, about the Allied uh, bombing campaign, uh, in World War II. It's called Wings of Judgment. It's written by uh, Professor Ronald Schaefer, I believe, of the University of California at one of their campuses, and it's published by Oxford University Press. And all of us here have a uh, 
have knowledge of that bombing campaign, but until I read this book, which took you uh, inside private meetings and into memos and strategy documents, uh, and you really read what people like Curtis LeMay and Hap Arnold and other people, people that I'm sure uh, called themselves Christians and went to a church back in their town, that these men actually used the words the word terror, it was not a bad word like it is now because we have terrorists and that's an ugly word, but back then they said we must terror bomb the population of these countries so that the population will force uh, their government to stop the war. Uh, even though every survey showed that this massive uh, indiscriminate slaughter of civilians stiffened the will of those people and it prolonged the war. Well, what would you say uh, when somebody is out to kill your family that uh, you want to negotiate? I mean, it's one thing to be up against another army. I was in the Pacific when the bomb was dropped, and I remember how stunned we were. And I was pleased at the time. I was relieved because I later on went into uh, the harbor there. It was like going into the neck of a bottle. We would have lost an immense number of men, I'm sure. But on second thought, and we all have second thoughts, and certainly men in high places are supposed to think two or three times, I couldn't understand why this devastating weapon couldn't have been demonstrated, why it had to be dropped on two of the uh, only Christian centers in the country. And we never found out who pinpointed those targets. No, that's not in the... Uh, that. Who pinpointed those targets was not in the book I read. No. But there was one interesting fact that this professor uh, uh, reported, and that was that uh, Kyoto, Japan, had been scheduled uh, for one of the drops. I forget which of the bomb cities it was replacing, but that Edward Stettinius uh, said absolutely not because he uh, had been to Kyoto and he found it to be a very beautiful city which had a lot of religious shrines in it, which of course were the... Another religion. Another religion. So he, he single-handedly vetoed. He evidently had great clout and when he said no, then it was off the list. So well, it was like any other committee. Committees operate on the uh, basis if there's any objection, you change it. Well, we have a very curious situation with regard to war and peace. A uh, retired general, whom all three of us know, told me some years ago of a visit with high, highly placed men in the State Department arguing against detente and against the whole of the attempt to bribe the Soviet Union, massive uh, grants, massive loans, everything. And he said, these people are evil. And you have to deal with the fact that when you bribe an evil man, you only increase his capacity to evil. And their reaction was one of contempt. That they called, the term they used was, the devil theory of politics. An ultimate good, an ultimate evil, and a kind of religious war between the two, between good and evil. And their thesis was that all people are basically good, and if you win them over by bribing them, in effect, 
you'll achieve world peace. Mm. And this is why we're in the problem we constantly are. We bribe every country in the world with foreign aid, unless, of course, there's some kind of anger because Saddam Hussein was against the use of American banks and uh, was for the all countries investing in Central Europe. Well, of course, who was it? Marx. Marx thought that everybody was after money. Mm -hmm. That was a projection. He thought uh, money was what moves the world. Imperial Spain spent almost all the treasure it received from the Americas on attempts to bribe other countries, and it was a disaster. And the uh, religious element, which we persistently overlook in the Middle East, we don't call the problems that Israel has with the Muslims a religious conflict. We keep talking about it as though it's a geophysical, economic, and political conflict. The American government has a blind spot against on religion. It's an anti. It's not just a neutral government. It is an openly anti-Christian government that we have, <clears throat> and it also believes that there is no such thing as Islam. There is no such thing as any religion anywhere, and even Khomeini didn't shake that conviction. I want to comment on that. Your, your remark about Marx reminds me of uh, Jorgen Rosenstock Husey's uh, quote that uh, Marxism was an attempt to found a church on bread alone. But, wh but what keeps coming, uh, the question that keeps coming uh, to my mind over and over regarding a number of issues, I mean we're currently discussing the war uh, with Iraq or whatever that was, police action, it wasn't even really a police action, something less than a police action is where are the Christians in this country? Four out of five adults in this country are supposed to be Christians. In June of 1990, 74% of the American people said not that they just believed in God or some cosmic energy force, but that they had a personal commitment to Christ. Yet, we have a war where we, we go to save countries. We rent our armed forces. We rent our sons and daughters to go fight in defense of countries where Christianity is illegal, where it is against the law to be Christians. Yes. <clears throat> and then in the countries where there are Christians, like the Baltic nations, we, we not only don't send, you know, our armed forces there, which I'm not necessarily for, they're, they're more than, you know, more than one way to help those people, we do nothing for the Christian countries, but fight for the ones where our faith is outlawed. It's madness. Well, I think... As Otto observed earlier, our media has closed the minds of Americans to the truth about many things, and especially to the fact of a Christian witness in this country. Now, with the kind of reports being made that nine out of ten Americans were for Bush and for the war, when I wrote as I had somewhat earlier, and it was published, I think, in the March number of the report, Chalcedon Report, on Biblical Military Laws. I expected a flood of protest. Hmm. And the result was quite the contrary. In fact, one 
newspaper in Virginia asked permission to reprint it immediately. A radio station in Chicago wanted to interview me, but I was tied up and I couldn't do it. And I know of only one person who disagreed, as you know, very bitterly and violently. But apart from that, I was amazed at the fact that there wasn't that enormous pro-war sentiment out there that was being paraded everywhere in the public media. Well, the polls are a great illusion. There was no great war spirit in this country. There never is. This is not a warlike country, and I think that female professor I heard, wish I remembered her name, she said before it started, she said the argument that we would not put our fighting men at risk but we would hit the enemy's women and children is basically an immoral argument. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, the, there is great relief because we lost less than 100 men, and most of those were lost in accidents in the desert. I mean, they ran into each other in their jeeps out in that desert, hmm. or they fell out of, fell in front of a tank or something. There was hardly, there was no engagements at all here, hardly any shots fired back. So there was great rejoicing, and now I understand there's going to be great parades in New York if they can rustle up the money to put one on. We went in there with a credit card, which we uh, which we asked the Bank of Tokyo and the Bank of Berlin and others to to honor for us. Well, if I were a soldier in that war. I would want no part of a parade put on by a city where the mayor on the St. Patrick's Day Parade marched with the homosexuals who crashed the parade. That's right. And where they trashed the Catholic Church, St. Patrick's Cathedral. That was shameful. And any city that does that, nothing they do for you is anything but a dishonor. That's true. Yeah, and then and then Archbishop O'Connor uh, finally had a meeting with Mayor Dinkins where they came out all smiley-faced and posed for a picture. So the Archbishop, while he may have several months ago started off in a very uh, hard-line biblical position, evidently appears to have knuckled under to the mayor and become friends with him. Well, I talked to a man, I think I mentioned it to you, Rush, from Canada the other day, who grew up in Buenos Aires. And an English family, they, they, he said there were 500,000 English families down there at that point. You know, it's a very Europeanized country. Under Perron, when things really got bad, his parents took him out. And he said it was against the law at that time to leave the country. Now he's living in Canada. He said both the Canadians and the Americans are totally unaware of the fact that they're living in a tyranny. He said, we have less rights in these countries than we had under Peron in Argentina. And you know that's true if you try to exercise your constitutional right of free speech. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, people are being punished for their position on the war. Yes. Editors have been fired, have lost their jobs, and there is a sort of a <coughs> purge going on yes. 
where those who spoke against the war before it started are going to be retroactively punished. Yes. Hope you're right. We have <coughs> had information from people who have been involved in that kind of retribution mm -hmm. or whose friends have been. Well, I think the worst thing that could have ever happened to this country was to appear to get some sort of quick fix, short victory in a war like this. I think it's going to have terrible uh, repercussions. I don't think the people that are coming home that are going to march in that big Fourth of July parade, I don't think in their hearts they think they're heroes at all. They, they know who they, uh, they know killed. They know who they incinerated. They, they saw the ages of those, uh, a lot of those kids they pulled out of those holes in the desert, kids that were forced into uniform by Hussein because they were told that their families would get no food or water if they didn't get on the bus and go to the front. It was an atrocity. Well, there's another atrocity going on because right now the infrastructure of Iraq has been destroyed. It's a city, it's a country of 18 million people, about the uh, population of California, and they have no water. They have not a single working toilet in mm. Baghdad. Mm. Now, just for reasons of health alone, we should go in there. There's, something should be done. But uh, I heard the president say recently that uh, he didn't feel that any any uh, goods should be sent in. He doesn't think the Iraqs should sell any of their oil on the world market until Saddam Hussein leaves office. Now, this is a peculiar thing. Why do the Americans feel that if somebody loses a war with them that they have to change their government? We did that in World War One, and it didn't help the Germans. They got Hitler. Yes. Well, look, I mean, and with this war crimes business, what's going to happen when we lose the war? We're going to go on trial. Yes, of That's course. That's going to happen. Because we've established the president, a precedent that if you are a loser, you're going to be a criminal. Well, I think that what's wrong, certainly from a Christian biblical perspective about this whole uh, balance of power idea, is that it's man attempting to play God. God raises up nations and rulers and throws them down. And every time men have tried to do it, just in, in my lifetime, uh, get rid of Batista. Who did you get? Got Castro. You got Castro after You Batista. can run the list. You get rid of Samosa. Who did we get? We got the Sandinistas. One of these prelates that attended this meeting came over here, by the way, and he said he watched on television a program where men were kissing each other. It was a apparently one of these pro-gay, to use the term, yes. uh, demonstrations. And he thought of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said, how long is this country going to endure? Yes. Yeah, well, I... If, Maybe Bush should send uh, 500,000 troops to wherever that demonstration occurred in our own country and uh, try to secure our country. Well, that's what Ross Perot said before the thing started. He said, uh, we're all against uh, abuse of individuals, murder, tyranny, and so forth. But he said, when is he going to send the army into Detroit, into Los Angeles? Or the, how about, how about two blocks from the White House? Or Washington, For, for openers, yeah. Yes. Yeah, of course, the, prob the problem is, 
You know, I thought of a quote while you were speaking. Uh, one of the rationales put forth by uh, Marlon Fitzwater, the White House press spokesman, was that we had to intervene in this Kuwait thing because America has this u a unique respect for human life. That was uh, right when the war began. And, and I think there was a time in our history where that probably could have been said. But then you look at what, uh, what I mean, our, you look what was done in Iraq. And that convoy, the pictures of that convoy won't leave my mind. Are, are Iraq, are the people of Iraq not humans? Well, we have over 20,000 murders a year. That's, yeah, here. Here. Here in America. And many more than that maimed. We have reared up a generation which shows so much violence and murder on TV that the average child, by the time he finishes school, has seen thousands upon thousands of murders and other instances of violence. So that sort of thing has lost its meaning to them. It's lost its meaning to the government, too. Yes. It's lost its meaning to our military. Mm -hmm. And this means that we are ripe for despotism. Yes. But, you know, I think there is some method in uh, President Bush's madness. Uh, I, I think he does have a feel for the American people in this sense that you, you notice over and over in assessing this war how often it's been dealt with uh, the so-called victory in psychological terms, like we had this problem with our psyche. We really didn't esteem ourselves enough, and now that we've gone and bombed and killed, uh, who knows, 100, 500,000 people, we're supposed to feel better about ourselves now. That Bush knows that being against evil at a distance around the globe, people of a different color, uh, there's no cost there. But if he sent that... 500,000 troops into the District of Columbia and went after those people, uh, I don't think he'd have 91% support. That would be a real act of courage. Well, I don't think he has 91% support. Perfect. I also think this is very interesting, that when he campaigned for office, you know, he went to a flag factory and he was held, it was considered a contemptible thing to do. Uh, this action, we at this point, we were given official permission to be patriotic. To be patriotic was considered despicable just a year ago. But this was an official, it was almost like a Soviet spontaneous demonstration. You will appear in the, in the square tomorrow at 8 o'clock, you know, and carry a flag. Now all of a sudden the flag is fine. They burned the flag. The Supreme Court said you could do other things to the flag if you wanted. But certainly to burn it was an expression of free speech. And now suddenly, yes. suddenly, it's okay to be patriotic. It's not chauvinistic. That reminds me, it's in a sense unrelated, but very much related. Dr. K. Skilder, a great Dutch theologian, who was under such attack by the church, and during the war, you remember, the church synod met and condemned him when he could not appear because he was a leader of the underground to defend himself. The thing about Skilder was, before the war, knowing all that he did about the nation, he never displayed the flag or had one. 
But once the war broke out, when everybody was uh, praising <coughs> Hitler and thanking him for taking over the country, Skilder used the flag on every possible occasion. When it meant something, and that's the difference between what we're seeing today. It means nothing now to show a flag. Well, I, I was just going to say, I think that just as we've seen in the theological realm the cheapening of a number of doctrines where we have cheap, easy grace, we have cheap, easy forgiveness, we now see the civil religion equivalent of those theological doctrines where patriotism now means tying a yellow ribbon around something or, or putting a, a flag out in front of your house or on your aerial. Dur during this war, I made up a special bumper sticker that I put on my van, and it had a little flag on it. And it said, I too support our troops, but not this stupid war. And not was underlined. And uh, uh, it, I had about a half a dozen people want to know where they could get one of those. Right. Thank goodness, because some of them were quite large and burly men who came up to the van and said, I saw your bumper sticker, and I thought, uh-oh, that's going to get a knuckle sandwich. But they, I, I told them it was homemade. and uh, it, That brings up the mystery, because I didn't run across anybody in favor of the war except Forrest MacDonald, the historian, who gave a little talk about how brave we were against the Tripoli pilots. But, of course, Forrest that lives in the, in the 18th century. <laughs> to him, modern times begins with 1811. So I didn't pay too much attention to that. He's a good man. I'm sorry to hear He's that He's a good historian, him. yes. Well, I'll tell you, with the exception of uh, Howard Phillips uh, and Pat Buchanan initially, although Pat basically supported the war after it began, Virtually all the conservatives in Washington were very enthusiastically for this uh, for this war. For the war. Well, oh yes. Well, our time is really up. Uh, to end on a hopeful note, God's on the throne and He's going to judge these yes. people, and His judgments are true and righteous altogether. So justice will be done by God, even when man will have no part of it. And it is God who alone will prevail. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.